I'd like to open our Bibles back to where we left off last night in John chapter 14. We've been studying the subject of revival these past few days, and we've seen several things that God has taught us about the nature of revival. In the Old Testament, you find that the periods of distinct revival, especially in the time of Judah, were experienced during a season of humility, where God's people humbled themselves before the Lord, where there was a diligent search of God's Word, a search for direction from through the Word of God that would lead the Lord's people back into deeper level of fellowship with God. We saw that in Psalm chapter 85 that, that the mercy of God is what is associated with the gift of revival among God's people because, you see, God doesn't owe us anything. What he gives us is totally unmerited. It's, it's because of God's goodness. It's because of his grace that even we have the capacity to fellowship him. We found out by studying uh, revival in Isaiah that God's presence and God's power and, 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 and God's promises are always connected to revival. And we, we studied together uh, the 55th chapter, the 60th chapter, and the 64th chapter of Isaiah. And then last night went a little while to Isaiah 6. And uh, here in the New Testament, we find Jesus Christ says something that reflects what happens in revival. He says in John chapter 14, verse 23. And I'm going to ask you to read this out loud with me if it's okay. In John chapter 14, verse 23. Ready? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. See, in a very real sense, revival is when God comes among his people. When the Spirit of God comes among the people of God and and their heart begins to resonate with the things of God and rejoice in the things of God. And and all of a sudden, God becomes more important than any other thing, any other factor in our lives. That's the nature of revival. And this is a promise that Jesus Christ connects to the gift of His redeeming love through the cross, through the victory that we experience in Christ in His resurrection and then in, in His enthronement. As he sat down at the right hand of God, we actually sat down with him. And God made a promise in John 14, 15, and 16, and that is a new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you as a child without a father. I'm not going to leave you without that protection or that provision. I'm going to give to you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Parakletos, the the one that comes alongside of us all through our lives. Now, that's a, that's a great, great gift. But the question still begs to be asked, what does revival really look like? You know, last night we went to Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we saw that on the day of Pentecost there was a great anointing that occurred in the church of Jerusalem, and that great anointing was according to the promise of Christ. Christ said, Tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. And that's exactly what they did. They waited on the Lord. They focused upon the prayer altar. And they were seeking God through His Word. And in that process, God anointed them with His Holy Spirit. And He filled the Jerusalem church with His glory. 
It's very reminiscent of what God did in the Old Testament tabernacle in Exodus 48, in the Old Testament temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. God manifested His glory in such a powerful way that not only were they able to praise and worship uh, with a heightened sense of the presence of God in their midst, but they were also able to feel or experience the forgiveness that comes through a knowledge of Christ. And I guess that's what we need most, isn't it? We need the sense of forgiveness. We need to have some affirmation, some assurance that God has not forsaken us, that God is real, that His church is real, and that His presence is real. Now today, I'd like us to turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 19 to begin with. And we're going to study some of the elements that accompany revival as was experienced in the ministry of the Apostle Paul in his efforts at Ephesus. He came to the city of Ephesus, and he would labor there for a period of three years, and he had an amazing ministry in Ephesus. And there are several things about his ministry in Ephesus that earmark for us the marks of true revival. Here, God the Holy Spirit led Paul and his companions to Ephesus, and and there are distinct marks that we're going to identify in this chapter that are going to hopefully help us to understand what we're going to see in our generation as we uh, see the gift of revival among us. Revival came in the day of Paul at Ephesus, very similar to the way he came in the days of King Asa and Jehoshaphat and Joash, Hezekiah and Josiah in the Old Testament. And it's always accompanied with God's Word. Always God's Word is at the heart of revival. When God's people have a hunger and a desire for the Word of God, a hunger and desire for prayer altars to be resurrected in the home and in the heart, you're going to see the ground being prepared for revival. And my fear among us today is that we're not prepared for it. My conviction is that many of us really don't want revival. Now, we say we do, and we think we do, but we really don't. Because many of us have slidden into what's called status quo Christianity. In other words, I'll attend church, I'll support when I feel like it, and I'll, I'll be obedient to a certain degree in my life, but I'm not really interested in the Lord just taking control of my life and filling my life with His presence and His power and His witness. It's kind of like inviting the preacher over to the house. You know, a lot of times when, when the pastor visits a home, They'll ask him to come into the front room of their home, and and really they don't want him to go anywhere else. They want him to sit right there on the couch and the freshly uh, freshly vacuumed floor and the very clean and spotless table, and of course you have the coffee cup on the table. What they don't want the preacher to do is go to the closet. They don't want him to look under the bed. Can I get a witness? Uh, they, They really aren't interested in him going and looking in the garage or the storage building. They want him to stay in one part of the house that presents the best view of them as a family. And uh, sometimes that's the way we treat God. We just want him to take possession of the most seen part of our life. But the other hidden agendas and the other hidden desires and the other hidden parts of our own goals and purposes, we want control of that ourselves. We don't want to surrender that to God. And in that way, we're really not prepared for revival. We really aren't. 
If we're not studying the Word of God and if we're not praying diligently each and every day and asking God for revival, why would we ever get the idea that God would bring revival to us? It's like asking a farmer if he believes that it's going to rain and the farmer says, I believe it's going to rain. And then you ask him, well, have you got your field plowed? Oh, no, didn't plow my field. Do you have your rows made? No, didn't have time to do the rowing. Did you plant any seed? No, couldn't afford that. Had other more important things to do. Well, then let me ask you a question. Do you really believe it's going to rain? Because if you believe it's going to rain, you're going to plow the field. If you really believe it's going to rain, you're going to plant the seed. And then you're going to expect a harvest. But if you don't break up the fallow ground, if you don't plow the field and plant the seed, what you're saying in essence is you don't believe it's going to rain. That's, you know, a lot of people have a problem with giving in the church. You know, they don't believe in tithing. And some people say, well, I don't believe in tithing. What they're trying to do is say, I don't believe in giving. But one of the main reasons people don't believe in tithing, don't believe in giving consistently and giving the first fruits of what they uh, receive from the Lord, one of the main reasons is they don't really believe that God is going to replace it. They don't really believe that God is going to make sure that all of their needs are met. We give God the front room, the public side of our life, the side that we feel the most comfortable with, but there's many parts and compartments of our life that we don't want God to invade. We don't want God to control. Now, that's just the truth of it. Now, the thing I like about the Apostle Paul is that he was wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. His whole life revolved around Christ. He did not ask Christ to revolve around his life. He says, Christ, I want you in the center. I want you to be the sun around which my life will orbit. I want everything I do to be in harmony with and congruent to, in agreement with, your will. That's the Apostle Paul's example. Paul says, where do you want me to go, Lord? I want you to go to Ephesus. Well, now, wait a minute. In the first place, Ephesus is a Gentile city. In the second place, they're pagan, a very pagan city, a very idolatrous city, a city where there was a focus upon an activity known as gladiators, where men would get into an arena and actually fight to the death. And this was going on in Ephesus at that time. There were a lot of a lot of insidious Greek and Roman practices in the city of Ephesus that would make any self-respecting Jew or any self-respecting Christian be kind of uncomfortable. But you see, the Apostle Paul didn't just have Christ in the front room of his life. Christ was in every room, even in the closets and the garage and the storage room. And Jesus says, hey, I need you to go over here to Ephesus because they need some help. He would be a lot like you and me. We would say something like, well, listen, you know, those folks are busy. Those folks are well-educated, and they're too educated to believe anything about Jesus Christ, and, and they already have a bunch of gods over there. Why don't you send me to a place where they don't, where they don't worship like that, and where there's not a, a lot of focus on the external elements of the flesh? And I could get very graphic, and I'm not going to, but it was a very simple place very sinful place. And I can kind of hear between the lines where Paul would say something like, are you really sure about this? Are you sure you want me to go to a place like Ephesus? Are you really sure you want me to go to a place like Gadsden? Jesus says, yeah, I want you to go. And I'm going to be with you. And, and, and I've got a work that I've called you to do. And you're the one that I called to do it. 
dropping down into the chapter in Acts chapter 19, verse 8 through 10, the first thing I'm going to show you that happens every time, every time there's a revival, it begins with a confrontation. It's no secret because the church of Jesus Christ is antithetical to the world. The church of Jesus Christ is like a fish uh, swimming against the current. It always is, always has been, and always will be. Jesus said that the primary function of the church is to be the salt and light of the culture, right? It's interesting to me that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, He would say, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What He's doing, He's defining our central purpose to, ex to, to existence. Our central purpose is not to please ourselves, not to make ourselves happy, not to make sure that I'm comfortable, not, not to make sure that life is easy, but our primary purpose is to do things that glorify God. And if you're going to do things that glorify God, you're going to do things that make Satan mad. There's going to be a confrontation. And every revival, there's going to be confrontation. That confrontation is found in verses 8 through 10. And he went, Paul and his company, went into the synagogue, that's the Jewish house of worship, and he spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse or different uh, people among them were hardened, notice that word hardened, that also comes from a Greek word that means blinded, they believed not, but spake evil of that way, way of Christianity, before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And it's interesting that uh, there's a historical uh, aspect to the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was actually a physician. And this was a, a building that he owned, and he taught in that building medical students. And he was Tyrannus. But we also know from the same historical account that the, the medical school was closed between the hours of 11 and 4 p.m. each day because of the heat. Because of the heat of the day, they had morning classes and evening classes to avoid the heat of the day. Well, during that time, this beautiful building was empty. So the Apostle Paul says, okay, if you're not going to use it, let me use it. And I can see kind of an example of renting a, a building right here that the Word of God could be instructed. Well, here he is, and this continued, verse 10, and this continued by the space of two years, so that they, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is a very important part for our study, because God used the ministry of the Apostle Paul to be a magnet in a particular city, in a particular place. And people from all over Asia Minor, Asia Minor was the Roman Empire, the, the Roman uh, province, and they would migrate to Ephesus because Ephesus was a popular place. Ephesus had a lot of sports going on. Every, Ephesus had a lot of colleges. Uh, they had a lot of activities, and they had a lot of commerce. So a lot of people would come to Ephesus, and when they'd come to Ephesus, they'd say, Hey, did you hear that kook, I mean that man over there named Paul? He's preaching a strange doctrine. Because his doctrine is talking about something that is unique to Christianity, and that's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and us. He's teaching something very different, different from our culture, different from our understanding, different from our philosophy, different from the way we grew up. And they would come and they would listen to this man preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this went on for about two years. And Jesus 
sent the Apostle Paul there not to compromise the message of Christianity and mold it into the philosophy of Ephesus. But he sent the gospel there to be the light that would bring about change in the culture at Ephesus. That's an important part. That's one reason revival comes. Because through that kind of reviving spirit, God enables the people to confront the generation in which it exists. To confront what's wrong. That's one reason I love Judge Roy Moore so much. What a great hero. What a great, and that's not just because he's from Alabama either. But what a great man to stand against the culture and say that the Ten Commandments are still good and still the foundation of law. Wow. You know, that cost him, didn't it? You know, we had him come out to Temple and, and speak to several groups, including our church. And, and I asked him, I said, uh, Judge, uh, has anybody ever asked you this question? Was it worth it? You know, you got fired and you lost your benefits and they hung you out to dry and told you that your political future is over and everything that you believe in is taken away. All of those things. Was it worth it? He said, I'd do it every bit over again, no matter what it costs. That's kind of the attitude that God's people need when they confront an evil culture. That's Paul. Paul uh, confronted the culture at Ephesus. The second thing that I notice is confirmation. There was confirmation that God had sent Paul to that city because in verses 11 and 12, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out from them. And of course, that's how Paul retired a millionaire, right? Isn't that what you're kind of asking about? You know, I don't find any place where Paul charged for bringing healing to anybody. I don't find any place where Paul charged people to preach the gospel to them. I don't find one place where Paul would ever do something knowingly that would benefit himself rather than benefiting the people that he was trying to serve. What an example. What an example. Peter would say in Acts chapter 3 to the man that was at the gate, he would say, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee freely. That's one reason I think he was an old Baptist. He didn't have much silver and gold, you know. But what he had, he was willing to give away, you know, for the glory of God. That's Paul. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice this. Not only was there a confrontation going on in Ephesus, there was also a confirmation going on. God was confirming His blessing upon the ministry of Paul in that place. God was verifying, if you'll allow me to use a a theological term, He was validating the ministry of the Apostle Paul. His presence was with Paul. His uh, uh, preaching had effect. Uh, People were being converted to Christ. They were being benefited through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, that's confirmation. That's confirmation that God sent him to that city. Then we find in verses 13 uh, through 16 that there's conflict. Now, this is where we start getting uncomfortable, right here. (laughs) People don't like conflict. None of us, really, by nature, like conflict. But if you're going to be serving Christ, I mean, really standing up for Christ, you better get ready for conflict in your life. Then here comes certain of the vagabond Jews. The word vagabond there means, and literally comes from a Greek word that means strolling about. Recently, I had the privilege of preaching near a city called Thessaloniki, which is Thessalonica where Paul preached and, you know, wrote the book of uh, First and Second Thessalonians. And I ran into a group of gypsies. And they reminded me 
of the children's film Robin Hood. You remember? Do you do you remember that children? I mean, that's I know that's archaic, but uh, back in the day, you know, Robin Hood was a great movie. And uh, and and you remember when Robin Hood uh, and the bear uh, dressed up like gypsies and uh, had the had the the. Uh, the the what what is that called the crystal ball thank you I, I knew somebody would know and 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 they were deceiving Prince John you know I thought that was all made up but let me tell you something I met people that looked just like that and they actually used a crystal ball it, you know it was just it was just amazing it, it was just uh, it just blew me away when I met these and they called themselves the vagabond and all they do is go about seeking who they may devour. They go about seeking what they can steal. And they're known for that. That's their reputation. Like one of them told me, he says, hey, we've got a reputation to uphold. You know, we're thieves. We're vagabonds. Nobody wants us to stay in their community. We, you know, we go to the apple orchards to steal the apples. We go to the peach orchards to steal the peaches. And that's how they live their life. And we shared the Gospel of John with them. We had the Gospel of John in, 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 in the Greek uh, text, and, and, and we gave out uh, those things. And, of course, they told us to put our watch and our wallets in our front pockets, and, boy, they, they said they'll steal you blind. Every time I read that word vagabond, I remember that group of gypsies. So here are these designing vagabond Jews, gypsies, and they're coming around the Apostle Paul, and they were exorcists. And that comes from a Greek word that means to exact with an oath. They are charging people to remove evil spirits from them. Uh, snake oil salesmen, if we could say that. And they take upon them the call to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you. In other words, this is going to be their new formula. They're going to use this oath, this ritual, this spell, this enchantment to cast out demons. And they said, we're going to cast you out by the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches. Now, they didn't say the name of Jesus Christ, whom I believe in. The name of Jesus Christ, who lives in my heart. It's not by the faith of Jesus Christ in me that I'm commanding the evil spirit to depart. I'm commanding the evil spirit to depart in the name of Jesus, whom Paul knows, loves, serves, and preaches. Well, surely that'll work. Well, wait a minute. Verse 14. There were seven sons of Onskiva, a Jew. And chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit, listen to me carefully. Now, I realize that some of us don't believe in this stuff. You know, I realize that some people don't believe in demonically possessed people. But trust me on this, it's real. Trust me when I'm telling you, even in America, we, we've seen this. We've seen spiritually possessed people. And if you ever go with me to India, you'll, you'll, you'll be around a lot more of it. And it's a lot more apparent. And it's kind of spooky. But here this evil spirit answers and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who in the world are you? Now that's a kind of an improvised version. But who are you? Now even the demonic spirits that were in Ephesus recognized that there was a new force in the city. There's a new force in the town, and uh, it's not friendly to us. It's trying to conquer us. We know about Paul. We know about his preaching. But who are you, these vagabond Jews? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. Now, this is tremendous. Leaped on them and overcame them, beat them up, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What a sight. They beat them up, took the clothes, and said, now get out of here. That'd be plumb embarrassing, wouldn't it? Brother Adcock, it'd be more embarrassing for some of us than others. <laughs> well... 
what are we learning here? We're learning that not only is there confrontation, not only is there confirmation, but there's always going to be conflict. And the one you're going to be conflicting with, with most of all, is the devil. The devil is real. He's the second greatest power in the universe. Who's the first greatest power? Huh? Jesus or God. That's right. Okay. The next point that I want to make is found in verses 17 through 19. Where you have the spirit of revival or the elements of revival, you're going to have conviction over sin. This is something that's called old-timey religion. This is something that people don't want to hear about today. They want a Christianity that allows for sinful behavior and sinful attitudes and sinful actions to be uh, looked upon as some sort of Christian liberty. In other words, I'm a Christian, therefore I can live as sinful as I want to because my sins are forgiven in Christ. I'm going to tell you that's false religion, that's demonic religion, and that is unbiblical religion. The grace of God does not lead us into more sin. The grace of God delivers us from the power and the bondage of sin. There's a vast difference in those two things. Now, what's going to happen during the ministry and the preaching of the Apostle Paul, the spirit of conviction is going to come upon uh, the people hearing the gospel. And by the way, I've seen this several times in my life, especially overseas. When the spirit of conviction hits a people, it's an amazing, amazing thing. I mean, people fall on their faces, crying out for God to have mercy on their soul. I've witnessed that. Well, that's what happened in Ephesus. Verse 17, And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, what they heard about was not only the preaching of the Apostle Paul, but they also heard about how these demonic influences were, were uh, being uh, released in the city of Ephesus, and it was scary. Kind of like the day we're living in today, where we see so much demonic activity in our country, in our court system, in our political system, in our economy, in our military, and all of the various things that break our hearts about the condition of our country today. I'm submitting to you that a lot of it is demonic delusion. It's demonic delusion. He says, conviction came. Fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Verse 18, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Now, I'm going to tell you, what he's saying is, Jesus Christ is no longer in the front room of the house of these believers. He's taken over every part of their life. He's taken over every area, every compartment of their soul, every compartment of their being. They become wholly His. They belong wholly to Him. And they're saying, God, just use me in whatever way, uh, in whatever ministry, in whatever effort, in whatever uh, design that you have for me. Just allow me to be used for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. That's the all-consuming idea of the early church. That's the all-consuming conviction of these people. They realize the holiness of God and they realize their own sinfulness and they're coming to the remedy. The remedy for our sinfulness is Jesus Christ. The remedy for our coldness in the service of God is Jesus Christ. And more on that in just a minute. But they confess. Do you understand what the word confess means? The word confess is an interesting word study. It literally means to speak the same thing. To speak in agreement. When, when a confession is made in a court of law... The one doing the confessing is agreeing with the charge that is against him. Agreeing with the evidence that is against him. So he's agreeing. He's confessing what he has done. 
when a people come into an understanding of what they're doing wrong in their life or in their attitudes or in their actions, when they come to understand that it's wrong, it's against God, it's against God's Word, it's against the truth, the thing they need to do is confess it. They confessed. They didn't argue with God. They, they didn't argue with the Scripture. They took it at face value and said, I know God and the Scripture is right, and I know that my life is not in harmony with God said, what God said. Therefore, I'm not going to ask God to change in order to accommodate my life. I'm going to have to change to accommodate His. See, a lot of people want to believe in Jesus Christ today on their own terms. I meet them all the time. They want Jesus on their own terms. But Jesus is not a bargain. Jesus is not going to meet you on your terms. He requires that we meet Him on His terms. And that requirement, part of that requirement is a a thing called conviction, where we are convicted over our sins. What can we do if we're convicted over our sins? Sins of pride, sins of lust, sins of selfishness, sins um, of overt activity that I know is wrong and, and I shouldn't be involved in. What is the solution for the Christian? It is to confess. Confess that sin. Now, there was a day. No, I'm not going to go. I'm, I'm not going to go. Confess the sin and turn from it. That's called repentance. Repentance is a gift of God's grace whereby we are able to turn away from that action, that attitude, that lifestyle that is contrary to the word and teaching of God. And by the way, that's the only way you're going to do it. You can't do it on your own. Can I get a witness on that? Try it. Try it. When my little ones, you know, were coming up and they lost that first tooth, I'd always tell them the same thing my daddy did. I'd pull out a new quarter and I'd say, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a quarter if you keep your tongue out of that space. And I can still see all four of them saying, oh, I'm not going to put my tongue in my mouth. And they've got it in there already. Because there's some things you do without thinking. There's some things you do naturally. It's a natural tendency, you see? And we naturally are tendent toward the wrong thing. Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach a child to lie? You don't have to teach a child to cheat? You don't have to teach a child to kick brother, kick sister, you know? It's like that brother and sister on the front pew, remember? And the, and the older sister uh, kept uh, pushing the little brother. She didn't want the little brother sitting so close to her, and she kept pushing, kept pushing. And finally, she grabbed him, threw him in the floor, and kicked him right in the stomach. And Mama came and said, Child, what are you doing? I believe the devil made you do that, girl. And she says, well, I'll tell you what, Mama. I think the devil did make me kick brother in the stomach. Uh, no, the devil did uh, cause me to throw him in the floor, but kicking him in the, in the stomach was my idea. You don't have to teach that to a child. They come by it naturally, you see. You have to teach a child not to lie. You have to teach a child about kindness and sharing. All of us do. Because there's a tendency in the human nature, the fallen human nature, to do things contrary to what's good and what's right and what's noble. Well, when that happens, it brings conviction. Conviction is what produces true repentance. And I'm so thankful that there's a good news gospel. Listen to me carefully. This is the gospel of Paul. There's a good news gospel that says this. No matter what you've done, no matter how you failed, no matter the depth to which even the devil has carried you in. And no matter how long you've been there, there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful message? That's the message that Paul brought to Ephesus. 
Here's this conviction that's going on and they're confessing and they're showing their deeds. They're confessing what they've done. They, 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 they are being honest. They are being transparent. They're saying, this is what I've done wrong. What can I do? What can I do about uh, the, the, the mistakes I've made in my life? How can you unscramble an egg? There's nothing you can do to change the past. You can't do that. But there's everything that you can do this morning to change the present. And that is what's going to affect your future. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to look to Jesus and I want you to see in Him that Jesus Christ is the great Savior of sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, Paul writes. Jesus, uh, uh, in Matthew one twenty one, uh, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for he, he shall save His people from what? From what? From their sins. From what's wrong in their life. From the mistakes and from the demonic delusion and from the departures. I'm going to save you from all of that. That was the message that Paul brought to Ephesus. And it brought about conviction. And many of them, verse 19, I just want you to see what revival looks like. Many of them which used curious arts. Do you understand what that is? That's witchcraft. Oh, but Brother Jeff, that's, you know, that's archaic. That, that doesn't exist. Oh, let me tell you, every country that I visit, I've... I visit among people that have been deceived by witchcraft. It's very real. And it's a growing phenomenon in America. Wicca. It's a growing thing. Uh, it's a growing cult. It's a growing practice in America. But see, when you go to uh, the dark regions of Africa, they've been doing that for centuries. Conjuring up spirits. Spirits that you can actually hear speak. Spirits that scream. Uh, spirits that inhabit people and cause them to go crazy. I'm telling you, it's a real thing. And, and it happened in Ephesus. And, 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 and here, many of them uh, that were deceived by witchcraft and demonic delusion and curious arts of various kinds brought their books together. Listen to this. Brought their books together and burned them before all men. Uh, I've suggested in the state of Texas we're fighting a battle with common core curriculum in the public schools and it's a tragedy. It's a anti-Christian, anti-American type of curriculum that's uh, brainwashing our children into be becoming socialists and atheists and all of, evolutionists and all of that. And I have suggested that there be a large book burning. Well, that's what happened in Ephesus. There was a book burning. And uh, they brought the books together and all of their uh, incantation uh, uh, books, the how-to manuals for witchcraft, and all of the, the Ouija boards and all of the, the, uh, the uh, uh, crystal balls, and they burned them before all men. In other words, there was a public declaration that I am separating myself from this lifestyle. Wow. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of people that ask me, uh, Brother Jeff, how much is 50,000 pieces of silver? You know, give me an exact amount on that. Well... It's impossible to do because uh, the value of money through the centuries changes, you know, and it escalates kind of. And, but I'm going to just say this. 50,000 pieces of anything is a lot. When I first moved to Georgia in 1993, they had an expression. They said, it's a fur piece. One day I just asked them, where did that expression come from, fur piece? And they said, well, it came from the previous century when a man stands at the bottom of a, uh, of a pine tree and he looks up to see the first limb, where that first limb is there, that's a fur piece. That's what they told me. Well, brothers and sisters, I think uh, 
I think when you and I consider the way we are in relationship to God today, especially in the church in America, we're a fur piece from where we ought to be. We need revival. The hope of our nation, the hope of the state of Alabama, the hope for Gadsden, Alabama, the hope for the church of Jesus Christ in the earth, the hope that you and I have is has nothing to do with the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or, or the political process. The only hope for our nation is revival. We need to see revival. And the elements of this revival are going to involve confrontation, confirmation, conflict, conviction, and then we're going to see the meaning of verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God, and catch this, and prevailed, and prevailed. That's a powerful verse to my mind. It's describing the invincible character of God's word. It's describing the power that is associated with the word of God when the people of God are filled with it, controlled by it, guided by it. It is a a force in the earth. Now, I want you, if you're taking notes, I want you to think about these things in this context. Number one, I want you to notice how fear fell on them all. Can I submit to you that one of the, the things that's wrong with our country today, especially our political process, is they don't fear God like they did at one time. They talk about how we need to remove God from the public forum. We need to remove anything Christian from the public forum. Even our military forces are falling into that trap. They're saying, hey, we can't pray in Jesus' name. We can't pray. You know, the way you're supposed to pray in the military today is uh, at the close of the prayer, uh, and we say this in the name of whoever you consider God to be. And they tell preachers like this, you know, we have a um, Fort Hood is right down the road from where I live, and and I was uh, trying to minister there, and they told me that I had to pray in the name of whoever you consider God to be, and I refused to do it. I said, you need to get somebody else. I can't do that. To do that is to betray who I am and who my Savior is. Well, then you're not welcome on this post. And by the way, they will not let me on post anymore because I'm not politically correct. Well, thank God when Paul came to Ephesus, he wasn't politically correct. He says, uh, Luke is writing this, he's the historian, and he's saying this is how the Word of God inundated the whole culture of Ephesus and Asia through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and it didn't just in, it, it, did, it didn't just uh, impact it; it actually prevailed. Great fear came upon the people of Ephesus. They feared the God of Paul. The name, secondly, the name of Jesus Christ was exalted. You see, revival is not about you. Revival is about Jesus Christ and His glory. The third thing I notice is that conviction. Honesty, humility, and repentance led to a public denunciation of sinful practices. Conviction, honesty, dealing honestly with sin, humility, repentance, led to a public denunciation of sinful practices. And then fourthly, the Word of God grew and even prevailed even in the midst of a pagan culture. Now, to me, in my way of thinking, this is just so powerful because it shows me the elements that were involved in the revival that occurred in the ministry and during the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And and, and to me, it's just a, a powerful example. And you're sitting there and you're saying, well, Brother Jeff, I, I really 
I really appreciate that. That's a great history lesson. Uh, and, I, and I'm sure that Ephesus never forgot, the church at Ephesus that Paul helped constitute never forgot what Jesus did for them. He set them free. Uh, a great church was established there. Uh, some of their pastors, you might recognize the name, Timothy, the spiritual son of Paul, was a pastor at Ephesus. John the Apostle. John the Apostle actually ministered the last ten years of his life at Ephesus. That's why he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, because Patmos is close to Ephesus. He was in Ephesus when he was arrested and when he was convicted of being a Christian. You know, I'm afraid, Caleb, sometimes I'm afraid that if we were arrested and convicted and and, and actually uh, accused of being a Christian, I'm afraid they wouldn't find enough evidence in our life to convict us. But not so with John. John was convicted of being a Christian and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And while he's there waiting to die, and that's where he died, but while he's there waiting to die, what did God give him on the Isle of Patmos? What, what revelation did God give him? Whoops. What book did God give him? Revelation. And by the way, it's not revelations, is it? It's not plural. It's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, John, for standing up for what was right and true, and being persecuted and exiled to that Isle of Patmos, saw the greatest view of the glory of heaven and the glory of God than he ever had. But he writes something, and I've got to hurry here, because I'm trying to quit early. I better hurry. Go with me very quickly. I just want something here that's going to shock you. It really is. It's going to shock you. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Here John is, and he's on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus Christ is... He's going to give him a message. He's going to give him a message to give to the church at Ephesus. Now, this is what we've been studying all morning. We've been looking at Acts 19. This is Paul's ministry at Ephesus. We know that there was a great revival there. We know the elements involved in that revival. But the book of Revelation is written about 40 years later. Now, that's not very long. I used to think 40 years was a lifetime. You know, I can remember. No kidding. I can remember thinking, boy. Somebody's 40 years old. They're old. But you know, when I got to be 40, it didn't seem as old. I used to think, oh man, when somebody gets 50, oh, they're over the hill. Well, then I got to be 50. And I found out that, you know, that's not not too bad. And now it's 60 and maybe it'll be 70. We have a a changing evaluation of time. Amen? Amen? Well, just 40 quick years later, Jesus is going to say something to the powerful church at Ephesus that we need to hear this morning. First, he commends them for what they're doing right. Man, they're sound in doctrine. Ooh, they're, 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 they're doing great things for the kingdom. They're, they're growing. They're doing a lot of things right. He commends them and he blesses them. But then he says something in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, and it's the great nevertheless. In fact, it's one of the greatest neverthelesses you'll ever read in the Bible. It's, it's, it, 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 it's something that uh, seems to uh, shock the senses of God in the church at Ephesus. He says, I blessed you in all of these ways. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because thou hast left thy first love. In just 40 years, they had gone from great revival to a loss of love. First Corinthians 13, Paul says, I can have uh, the gift of angels, uh, the gift of tongues. I can have the gift of angel, uh, all knowledge, all uh, ministry. I can be the greatest preacher in the world. I can be the greatest church in the world. I can, I can be doing the most work for the kingdom of God in the world. And yet, if I don't have love, 
He says, it profits you nothing. To me, that's powerful. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. Brothers and sisters, I just want to ask, could that happen to us? Could, could it? Could we forsake? And that word left means abandon. Could we abandon our first love? Who is your first love today? Um, what's the way back? What's the way back? I, I want to give you four quick points. The first thing you need to do is remember, right? Remember, verse 5, remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember. I, w- I want you to remember the day in which you were constituted. I want you to remember the zeal that you had in the early days. I, I want you to remember the ministry of the gospel that was among you. I want you to remember the power of the Holy Spirit that was among you. Secondly, I want you to repent. I want you, and remember, I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. We need to repent. We need to repent. We need to turn. We need to change. We need a change of mind that results in a change of direction. That's true repentance. He says, I want you to repent and I want you to return. I want you to remember. I want you to repent of known sin and I want you to return. Return to the shepherd of your souls, 1 Peter 2.25. I want you to return to a position of usefulness. I want you to return to focusing upon Christ instead of yourself. I want you to return to a people that is sold out to Jesus. Every area of my life, every talent, every gift, every ability, Lord, here it is. I'm giving it to you today. And fourthly, we need revival. The path to revival is not easy. There's no such thing as a pain-free revival. It's going to cost you. Because some of the things you remember are not pleasant. But as you remember them, you need to repent of the things that you know are wrong. Whether it's an attitude or an action, you need to repent of that thing. And you need to return to the Lord because He's the source of your strength. What do we find in Him? We find our power. We find our, uh, our promise. We find the very pleasure of God um, in Jesus Christ. We find a purpose in Him. We need to return to Him. It's kind of like that man and woman that were married. You know, when they first got married, when they'd get in the pickup together, it looked like it was one body with two heads. Well, after just a few years, you know, she's sitting over here by the door. And uh, one day she says to him, she says, You know, there was a time when we enjoyed uh, riding in the truck together side by side. And the husband just looks over and says, I haven't moved. You see, Jesus hasn't moved. It's us. We've moved. We've moved away from Him. And what we have to do is return to Him. And what are we going to return to Him for? Revival. We need revival. And He's the only one that can give it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time together in Your Word. We love You, Lord. We love Your people. We love the truths that sets men free. We know, dear Lord, that we have left you, and we ask that you would give us the grace to confess our sins, to forsake them, and turn to you to receive mercy. We ask that you would give us again that reviving fire from heaven that would uh, fire up the altars in our life, that we would be useful in your kingdom work here below. And Father, I ask that you would bless each of us to realize that true revival begins in the heart. We ask that you would just use these, these words to find special meaning and application to our individual condition today. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask. Amen.